0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Genghis Khan, one of the greatest conquerors ever to have existed. Now, you've heard of this bloke before, of course, he forged the Mongol Empire, which at its peak was the largest contiguous empire the world has ever seen before or since. It reached all the way from eastern China, all the way across essentially to Europe, and the Mongol hordes seemed unstoppable as they ravaged their way outwards from the Mongolian plateau. But as you'll discover this week, there's a lot more to the story than just that, because Uh, In particular, the beginnings of Genghis Khan's career, very, very interesting indeed, and that's what we're going to spend most of today's episode talking about. When he was born, the area where the Mongol Empire would ultimately go on to be founded, it was inhabited by all these different warring tribes. They were constantly fighting and raiding with each other. They weren't unified. There wasn't, you know, Genghis Khan didn't inherit an empire that he went on to lead to greatness. No, I mean, he was born a noble, but he grew up in abject poverty. He was disp- he was dispossessed of his noble inheritance. He forged uh, the empire by himself from, from relatively humble beginnings. He rose to unite the warring tri- tribes of, of the Plateau, spilling a lot of blood as he did so. And while obviously, you know, we marvel at his conquests across Asia, the fact that he was able to forge an empire out of these disparate warring tribes is just an incredible achievement. Um, And that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Uh, As as I say, to, to, to tell the full story of this bloke, we're actually going to split the tale across two episodes. It's been a while since we've had a two-parter. This week we're going to talk about his rise to power and how, in 1206, he ended up at the helm of the newly created Mongol Empire. And then next week we'll come back. We'll talk about his conquests outside of Central Asia, from China all the way across to the Caspian Sea. So, before we begin, thanks go to alert listener Mason for suggesting for, for suggesting Genghis Khan as a topic. Thanks so much, Mason Oldson. Good on you, mate. But let's not muck about it any longer, let's get into it here and chat about Genghis Khan again, one of the greatest conquerors in history. Here we go, we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to Huboy, starting things off with a bang. We really do not know when Genghis Khan was born. There are some sources that say it could have been as early as 1155, others say 1162, while some sources that seem to have been written by people with what I can charitably describe as a very tenuous grip on reality, claim that he was born in 1182, which is, um, to put it mildly, very unlikely. But the broad modern consensus is that he was born during or around 1162. This makes the most sense in terms of lining up what he did at various points in his career with the age that he would be with an 1162 birth date. Uh, You know, he didn't unite all of the tribes and forge the Mongol Empire by the age of 24. I mean, as much as he was an overachiever, didn't quite, he didn't get, didn't get out of bed quite that early. Anyway, but it's not just the when when it comes to his birth that we're sure about. It's also the where. Somewhere in modern-day northeast Mongolia, probably the most common suggestion is, is around a mountain known as Burkhan Khaldun. But again, all this is far from a certainty, and these are just our best guesses. It could be very different. But we do know, what we do know about his birth, he was born to a fellow named Yasugi, and his second wife, Holon, right? Now, Yusugi was the chief of the Borjigan tribe. Uh, this was a part of a nomadic tribal confederation known as the Kamag Mongol. And there were, broadly speaking, five different confederations, uh, five powerful confederations that, that lived and fought and died on, the, on this plateau, the plateau that we today call the Mongolian uh, Plateau. So our mate, he's born into the, I guess, the minor nobility of one of these confederations being part of the, uh, of the Borjigin tribe, which was, again, under the banner of the, uh, the Kamag Mogul Confederacy. And there were, there were all these confederations, all these alliances, groups, whatnot. I mean, they're constantly chopping and changing and shifting. But the one thing that remains constant is they're always fighting, right? The Tatars, the Kerrids, the Nymans, heaps of others, all fighting with each other, all raiding, raiding and pillaging, and whatever else, until that is... Genghis Khan came along and ultimately unified them under one banner, the Mongol banner. And we'll get to that, you know, in due course. But very interestingly, as well, he wasn't named Genghis Khan at birth. And we'll talk about exactly why a bit later in the episode. That name is actually a title, it's not a name. Uh, Although it is, this title is what people have sort of, what history has sort of come to know him as. But today we're going to use his birth name to refer to him, Temujin. This was the name that he had when he was, you know, getting up to all the stuff we're going to talk about today, before he united the tribes, before he took this title of Genghis Khan. He was known as Temujin. And as I say, born into, uh, well, nobility on both his mum and his dad's side. However, his noble birth did not mean he had an easy upbringing. It wasn't bloody, you know, cushy thrones and peeled grapes for this young fellow. It was actually quite the opposite. He and his siblings, he had three brothers, a sister and two half-brothers. They had a fair few rough bounces when they were kids. When Temujin was just nine years old, his dad organised a marriage to the daughter of another tribe, the Congarad, uh, so as to bring the two tribes close together in an an alliance, and this was very typical for the time, of course. Temujin was packed up, he was delivered to the Congerad, and the idea was that he would stick around there and he would get to know his new tribe, his new family, that sort of thing, uh, until he could marry this girl, Berta, right, when he turned 12. But this didn't happen. Because when his old man Yusugi was on his way back home after dropping Temujin off, he ran into some Tatars. Now, the Tatars were the traditional enemies of the Mongols, so immediately Yusugi's like, oh, I've got to watch out here, I've got to be careful. But these Tatars, out of nowhere, very friendly. They go, oh, Yusugi, old son, how are you, I said, No, 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 not going to attack you, mate. Come, come come, and join us. Come get some tucker into you. No worries at all. They invited Yusugi along for a meal. Here you go, mate, dig in. Bloody bon appetit. Let's get stuck in. Let's have some food. But the twist that you never saw coming, of course, is that the Tatars had poisoned the food, and poor old Yasugi dropped dead just three days later. Now, Temujin, he hears about this. He's just nine years old, remember? He's poor old. His dad's died. He's a poor kid. He's lost his dad just nine years of age. So he goes, bugger this for a joke. I'm the captain now. I'm not sticking around here to wait to marry this chick. I'm going move- to go back and claim what's mine, take over the tribe that my dad used to be the chieftain of. Now he goes back and the Borgekin, they laugh and laugh at him. They laugh and laugh this little 9-year-old kid, very good joke there little fella now, you know, run along playing in your bloody sandpit with your Tonka trucks. You're absolutely not going to be the chief like your dad was. We don't have time for this. We we nah, forget about it, right? The Borjigin actually abandoned Temujin and his family. They, they cast them effectively exiled them. Perhaps they saw him and his brothers as a threat because, you know, they, they were the sons of the former chieftain. And maybe they'd rise up and, and take, the, uh, take the leadership of the tribe back from the people who had seized it after the, the death of Yusugi. So very bad bloody news for Temujin. He and his brothers are now forced to hunt and gather to feed the family. I mean, they're just kids. They're just kids and they're having to now provide. And it was not a smooth family dynamic either because Temujin's older half-brother, he started to behave like he wanted to be the head of the family, which caused a fair bit of strife as Temujin obviously, you know, he he wanted to be the one who was in charge of things himself. Now... Temujin took what really can be described as a characteristically direct route to solving this problem. It will become a, a bit of a signature move from this bloke throughout his life. He killed his older brother. He kill, he just killed his older half brother just like that he was challenging his power and therefore even just as a literal child he had he killed his sibling because he challenged him for power. Let me tell you, nothing changes about Temujin in that regard for the rest of his life. You can uh, you can be you, you can be certain of that. Anyway, He grew up in poverty, hunting and gathering and providing for his family when he wasn't murdering his half-siblings. But then, unfortunately, things took a turn for the worse around 1177, when Temujin was probably in his teens. He was taken captive by another different rival tribe, the Tachiud, right? And worse yet, he was enslaved by them. And as he was the son of a former chief of a, rival, of a rival tribe, he was paraded around, embarrassed. He was stuck in a weird kind of, like a, almost like a pillory, uh, one that didn't restrict his hands. It's called a kang. It's like a big collar. Uh, so he was put in that and he was paraded around, laughed at, you know, embarrassed, humiliated, whatever else. But this proved to be a bad move by the Taichiud because one night when they were feasting, Temujin snuck up behind his guard and used the collar to whack him on the head right? He used the collar to knock out the guard. So the very thing that he'd been put in to try to embarrass and humiliate him ended up becoming a weapon. The guard went down like a bloody sack of spuds. He's just been bonked on the head by a big bit of wood. He's out for the count. So Temujin flees. He ran away and hid by a river in a crevasse. Now, once they realized what had happened, the tachyo, they spread out and they searched for him. And, and one of the guards, one of the blokes who was searching, a, a Taishu guard, whose name was Sorkin Shira, actually found him. Crouched there down in the crevasse by the river. But for some reason, he decided not to raise the alarm and instead help the young man escape. And this proved to be a good move by the guard because Sorkin Shira's son, a bloke whose name was Chilaun ultimately went on to become one of Temujin's most trusted generals. Temujin was always very very he was very ready to reward loyalty and service and Saukenshire does seem to have made a, a you know a pretty wise decision in backing the bloke who would go on to become Genghis Khan. That generally would be you know the sort of the winning horse that you'd want to back. Anyway, Temujin does seem to have had a bit of an aura about him, something that drew others to him. There's another story from around this time that indicates this as well. One day, Temujin, he discovered that horse thieves had stolen most of the horses that he and his family owned. He leapt astride one of the remaining horses and uh, galloped off down the road trying to hunt down these thieves. But on the way, he ran into a young fellow whose name was borchu And Borchi was sitting there milking a cow and Temujin goes past, he goes, hey mate, um, sorry to bother you while you're milking your cow there, but you haven't seen any horse thieves riding past, have you? They they nicked my bloody horses and, and, and and I'm off after them. And Borchi goes, mate. You know what? I actually did see them bastards. I did. I reckon I know where they went too. So Temuji goes, well, mate, if you tell me where they go, I'll go off and will give them what? Four go and stealing horses, can you? And Watchu goes, no, 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 mate, listen, I'll do one better. I'll come with you. How about this? I'll show you where they are. And also, I mean, your nag looks pretty cooked, the one you're riding along here. Let me get you a freshy. I'll grab one for myself and we'll be off down the road. Temujin can't believe it. he's like he goes mate are you serious you're going to tag along with me and find these dickheads let's bloody go so Borchu saddles up with Temujin gives him a fresh horse and off the two of them go they're off together sure enough they track down the horse thieves just like Borchu said he knew where they were gave them a hiding together and, uh, and they got Temujin's uh, nags back no worries but Temujin didn't just get his horses back he also got Borchu. As a lifelong companion, Borchi was so impressed by Temujin for whatever reason, that he left his old life behind and attached himself to Temujin for the rest of his life, and also rose to become one of his most trusted generals, just like Chiloun. So you can see Temujin already attracting people that would go on to play a pretty important role in not only his life, but also, I mean, in, broadly speaking, world history with the formation and the the conquests of the Mongolian, of the Mongol Empire later on. Anyway, this is a long way away yet. We're back in, uh, back in the 11, late 1170s here. And in around 1178, Temujin got married for the first time. He would go on to have a huge number of wives, as was, you know, custom in, in, in this part of the world at this time. But his first did end up ultimately being Bhuta, the uh, the girl that he had been betrothed to initially. They did get married. And while he had so many children throughout his lifetime with all these wives that he had, it's estimated that he has today around 16 million descendants he had that many kids that over the generations 16 million people can trace their lineage back to Genghis Khan which is quite a lot but the four kids that he had uh, that were closest to him four sons were all the sons of Borta this is uh, Jocha, Chagatai, Ugedai and Tolui but of course we'll come back to them later I'll talk about them more next week for now Back in the 1170s into the 1180s, Temujin seemed determined to restore his family's position and seek power and influence once again. He's you know, he's gathering together a loyal band of followers, he's married, he's having kids. Despite his fall from grace after his dad's death, he did seem to have some, some kind of magnetism and his noble birth helped him in bringing people on side and bringing people into the fold here. And so slowly but surely, his fortunes began to turn. Now, the world that Temujin lived in, it was not an easy one. With all the tribes constantly in conflict with one another, attacking and raiding and looting, there was a lot of infighting between all the tribal confederations. And so Temujin, very wisely, in order to gain a foothold back into tribal politics, he decided that he would seek out the aid and assistance and alliance of other tribal leaders, other Khans, right? So he used his noble background to ingratiate himself with a couple of uh, a couple of different uh, Khans, uh, contacted his father's old allies, as well as friends that he had when he was a youngster, and he forged alliances with a few other clans. Now, one such clan, the the, the Jadaran, this was led by Temujin's childhood friend, a bloke whose name was Jamukha. Now, Jamukha seemed very happy to renew his friendship with Temujin. Um, uh, And I guess, look, it's not really properly explained by any historical records, but Temujin really did seem to do very well when making these alliances. And you think, okay, sure, well, you know, maybe he was friends with them when he was younger. Maybe they were the allies of his dad before his dad fell from from power after being poisoned. But we don't really have a, a... sort of full explanation as to why Temujin did so well with getting on side with all these different Khans. And Khans that were so much more powerful than him. I mean, what did Temujin have to offer in these alliances? We're not hugely sure. The other blokes had tens of thousands of troops at their disposal. Temujin didn't have anything like that. So... Why these other Khans sort of backed him so hard remains a bit of a mystery even to this day. But whatever the reason, Temujin was in here, and when his wife Burta was kidnapped by a rival clan, the Merkit, Temujin called his new allies to war, and they answered. Under Temujin's leadership, tens of thousands of allied troops descended on the Merkit, ripped them to shreds, looted and pillaged their camps, and rescued Burta. But he didn't stop there, because he took the fight to the age-old enemy of the Mongols as well. The Tatars. He raided and plundered them at every opportunity. And this won over a lot of people. People saw this bloke, look at him, he's going around kicking goals with both feet, feeding the Tatars, the left and the right, rescuing his wife. This bloke's brave, he's courageous, he's very, very, he's talented in battle. You know, he, he won himself a fair few fans doing this sort of thing. However, it also brought out a couple of snakes in the grass because some supposed allies of his used his absence while he was off fighting the Tatars and you know, doing whatever he was doing to instead raid and pillage his tribe, Temujin's tribe. And while hindsight is of course 2020, it turns out that betraying the bloke who would go on to become Genghis Khan is not a very good idea at all. When Termutin found out that his tribe was uh, was being attacked in this way while he was away uh, dealing with other business, he, I'll tell you what, his retribution was swift and terrible. He chucked his horse straight into reverse, zoomed back home and turned his by now quite considerable military might on these traitorous tribes. He ripped through them like a hot knife through butter and killed all the ruling nobility. The rest, whether they were prisoners, soldiers, civilians, whatever else... He took them into his growing tribe, whether they liked it or not. This swelled his ranks. It caused more and more people to end up loyal to him because they they were more or less conscripted into his army or forced to assimilate into his tribe. And in 1186, his growing power and influence, and not to mention his growing army, led to Temujin being pronounced the Khan of the Mongols. And so he was now the official leader of an increasingly powerful tribe. Now, of course, there are the other tribal confederacies that he's still going to worry about, but he's in charge of one of them. He's in charge of one of uh, of these, these tribal confederacies. It's important to note, while he is the Khan of the Mongols, right, he's not the leader of all of these tribes across the entire plateau. This isn't the point at which the Mongol Empire was formed. That's coming 20 years down the track. This is the point... This isn't the point where the Mongols had taken over everyone else, it's just the point where he had taken control of the Mongols. So, anyway, uh, from this point onwards, for the next 10 years or so, Temujin spent his time doing stuff. We don't actually really know what he got up to for the next decade or so. There just isn't that much written down about this period. The various tribes continued fighting. Temujin led the Mongols through various conflicts and hardships, including things like a drought, but as far as actual sort of really crunchy details, I just don't have him, mate. I mean, no one does. We don't really know what he got up to. There weren't huge escalations in conflict. There wasn't an enormous upheaval in terms of the status quo once he took control of the Mongols. They were still fighting against the other tribal confederacies. But ultimately, I mean, he obviously did pretty well for himself because ultimately Temujin's power and influence grew to the point that he was no longer seen as a useful ally to people like Jamukha, his childhood friend. He was instead seen as as a threat and this is where we sort of pick up the story again with jamuka and temujin who previously had supported each other through thick and thin where they began to have an increasingly strained relationship temujin had a very different approach to leadership when compared against some of the other tribal leaders at the time i mean someone like jamuka for instance represented the traditional rule by the elite ruling class, the nobility, the tribal nobility that, that upheld and, and uh, perpetuated this power structure where they were the ones in charge. Power was concentrated in the hands of the, of the tribal elite. They were the ones who oversaw the affairs, the people under them made the decisions. And, and broadly speaking, this was you know, pretty immutable. It didn't shift too much. Temujin, on the other hand, was a little more forward thinking. He was meritocratic He promoted people based on ability and on loyalty, which is, you know, why he ended up with the son of a gardener bloke who used to milk cows, ultimately being counted amongst the most trusted generals that he had throughout his entire life. Temujin was was famous for bringing conquered people into his realm, happily accepting their loyalty, ingratiating them into his people, and then promoting them if they had the ability if they had the capacity to help him out he he wasn't uh, he didn't draw the lines of power along uh, along classes lines or ethnic lines or anything like that if if there was someone who he thought would serve him well and loyally this person would rise through the ranks very easily and this really ran against the grain of the as i say before the the traditional power structure of these tribes you know this tribal leadership anyway the writing was on the wall with temujin and jamuka these these blokes they're already at odds politically you, you could tell they were going to end up fighting sure as anything mate these two are going to end up coming to blows over the years both of them had expanded their their power, their influence. And I mean, look, it, it's just got to a point where I suppose you could say the town ain't big enough for the both of them. In 1193, with Temujin increasing his armies, his wealth and, and, and his power with constant raiding and fighting against other smaller tribes, Jamuka decides enough is enough. And he has to take this bloke out of the equation. He attacked Temujin. And I mean, let's just remind ourselves of what this fellow's just done, right? He's just voluntarily decided to attack the man who would go on to become Genghis Khan. Not the sort of person you really want to make an enemy of, but Jamukha, he's backed himself. It's a gutsy move. He's gone into battle with, again, the person who would grow to be one of the greatest conquerors that that history has ever seen. And so you can guess what happened when Jamukha attacked Temujin. I mean, yeah, that's, yes, you're absolutely right. Jamukha crushed him Absolutely crushed him. He wiped the floor with Temujin. That is seriously what happened. Jamuka beat Temujin at the Battle of Balan Baljut, right? This was a rare accomplishment, not shared by many in history. But unfortunately for Jamuka, he didn't capitalize on this victory at all. He sent Temujin packing with his tail between his legs, but what he did after this battle, in fact, ended up being more of a benefit for Temujin than him, Jamuka, the bloke who had won the battle. The things that he went and did directly after winning actually undid a lot of the benefits that the victory had brought him. Jamuka decided, for whatever reason, that it would be a good idea as a show of retribution and force to execute a bunch of these senior Mongol captives, right? Now... Custom and tradition at the time demanded that those of noble birth, if they were to be killed, they were killed without spilling blood, right? So there were various different ways that you could kill a a person of high birth, of high standing, without spilling their blood. The most traditional way was to break their spine. But Jamuka decided to do something a little bit different to the the nobles and the generals and the other senior Mongol captives that he had taken alive. He decided to boil them. He boiled 70 of these Mongol prisoners, and this proved to be a bad move. A very, very bad move indeed, because as a result of this horrifically cruel fate for these people who were taken prisoner, this this cruel and unusual punishment, ended up with Jamuka actually losing the support and the loyalty of many of his rank-and-file men. They were disgusted with his cruelty, and around 10,000 of his troops defected. This was an absolute windfall for Temujin. These folks didn't just put down their weapons and walk away. They held onto their weapons and walked across the battlefield to the uh, to the enemy camp. So Temujin's ranks have just swollen like you wouldn't believe it. He can't believe it. I mean, he's back, baby. Let's go. Huge win for him here. And so as a result of this, after directly after winning this battle... Jamuka is forced to withdraw, couldn't follow through on having Temujin on the ropes after the win. An absolute freebie for Temujin, who, you know, despite the defeat, actually came out of the situation very well off indeed. And for Temujin, it only got better from there. Because in 1195, the Chinese Jin dynasty, they allied themselves with the Tatars and launched an attack on the Mongols that, that Temujin led. And you're probably thinking, whoa, 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 hang on, you said it only got better from there. What's going on? The, the Jin dynasty and the, and the Tatars are now, you know, tag teaming the Mongols. This can't be a good thing. And uh, I mean, to begin with, it wasn't certainly. The, the, this new alliance had some success on the battlefield. They were, you know, they were really taking the fight to the Mongols. But this alliance broke down very quickly and also... Very spectacularly, because the Jin and the Tatars couldn't agree, of all things, on who got what loot, and so before long, they were instead of fighting the Mongols, fighting each other, and so Temujin, realizing that you know the time to to make hay was while the sun was shining, he seized the initiative and attacked them both. In the middle of this infighting between these former allies, the Jin and the Tatars, the Mongols attacked. And I tell you what, they did not waste this opportunity. They forced the Jin to withdraw. The Tatars, however, they weren't so lucky. They weren't able to withdraw. Temujin absolutely annihilated them. He essentially removed them from the equation altogether. The, the, the Mongol attacks on the Tatars were so effective that the, the, the Tatars were almost neutralized as one of the, the larger tribal powers on the plateau. And as one of the main rivals of the Mongols, with the Tatars now out of the picture, Temujin was in a position to turn on the other rival rival tribal confederations. He approached the Jerkins initially to seek an alliance with them against the powerful Naimans, but when the Jerkins murdered Temujin's ambassadors, Temujin instead just conquered the Jerkins and forced them to help him fight against the Naimans. Should have just said yes the first time around, I reckon. He had, a, he had a good bit of luck fighting the Naimans as well, because in 1198, the Khan of the Naimans, he died and he split his realm between his two sons. Now, step one, the divide part, already been taken care of for him here. So Temujin, he moved straight on to step two, conquer, and the fractured Naimans fell before him, removing yet another powerful rival to the Mongols. So by now, Temujin and the Mongols, undoubtedly one of the most powerful warlords, one of the most powerful tribes on the plateau. The other remaining tribes, starting to get very worried here, they, they're looking at this bloke Temujin who's going around kicking goals with both feet, going around and, you know, knocking out the Tatars, knocking out the, Ni- the Naimans, and they're thinking, bloody hell, we're going to be next. So these other tribes, they frantically form. A grand alliance against Temujin and the Mongols with the aim to take this bloke down a peg or two and remove, remove him as a threat to what had been, as I say before, the traditional power structure of all of these tribes on the plateau. And would you like to guess who ended up in charge of this alliance? It was none other than Temujin's old friend-turned-rival, Jamukha himself. And as we move into the 13th century, Temujin is continually challenged by this alliance and constantly comes into conflict with them. I mean, look, he's still cutting about conquering various straggler tribes where he could, dealing with traitors and defectors within the tribes that he ruled. But everywhere he goes, he's challenged by these other tribes who are, at this point, they really believe they are fighting for their survival. And I tell you this, they were right in thinking that because Temujin, he was coming for them, and he was coming for them hard. Ultimately, I mean, look, it did take a while. There was there were battles, and there were raids, there was raiding and pillaging, and there was all sorts of blood and guts between the two sides. But it did take a couple of years. It took until 1204 for there to be a decisive result between Temujin the Mongols and this coalition that he faced. They, they fought in 1204 the Battle of Chakimaut, sometimes called the Battle of the Thirteen Sides, and this was, this was the turning point in Temujin's career. Because after winning this battle, after proving victorious against the combined might of all of the enemy tribes led by Jamaica, he became the uncontested sole and supreme leader of all of the tribes on the plateau. And what's more, after this battle, Jamukha was taken prisoner. The chickens had really come to home to roost for old uh, old Jamukha here, but who by some accounts was actually offered forgiveness and friendship by Temujin when he was taken prisoner. However, he refused. And instead, he asked for an honorable death. Now, as I mentioned before, custom dictated that those of noble birth should die without their blood being spilt. And Jamukha, very luckily you would think, avoided the grisly fate that he had subjected uh, uh, Temujin's men to years previous. He was not boiled alive. Instead, he he requested for his spine to be snapped, as, as was the custom. And that was the end of old mate Jamukha. Temujin always gets his man. But over the next two years, Temujin es- essentially was in a mopping up phase. He cleaned up the remaining resistance to his rule, but really there was just no one left to stand in his way. Which brings us to that critical year, 1206. By 1206, he had united the tribes of what is now called the Mongolian Plateau under his banner. And that, exalted listener, is why it's called the Mongolian Plateau. From what I understand, the tribe led by Temujin, the Mongols, was so utterly dominant that it subsumed all these other tribes, the Naimans, the Keriads and the like. And they became to history. Mongols. So Temujin didn't so much conquer Mongolia as he did create it. Before him, all these tribes, they were disparate, they were splintered, they weren't unified at all. So at this point, like, I, want to, I want to impress upon you once again, just how enormous this achievement is. We've talked about how much all these tribes love to scrap, they love to fight, constantly attacking and raiding each other. But Temujin rose to unify all, ...of these constantly warring tribes and bring all the people of the plateau together, whether they liked it or not. And 1206 marked the beginning, as a result, of the Mongol Empire. And it was in that year, after uniting the tribes, the Temujin took the title Genghis Khan. Now Genghis Khan roughly translates to universal ruler very well-chosen title for this bloke, as his his rise to power within what we today call Mongolia, was effectively complete. But what was behind his success? We talked about this almost sort of ephemeral idea of magnetism that he had, and look, maybe that did play into it somewhat. Some people are just inspiring leaders, but that's not enough to forge an empire. There are a few other factors at play, uh, factors that contribute to both sides of the ledger when it comes to Genghis Khan's reputation. So let's have a chat about them and try to uncover exactly what went into his empire building. Firstly, Genghis Khan, as we're calling him now, now we've got to 1206, he had a deep understanding of military strategy on a grand scale. While we have this perception of the Mongols as being a bloodthirsty horde of invading horsemen, you know, bent on destruction and plunder, and while this perception isn't entirely unfounded, it doesn't give them their due. Genghis Khan was keenly intelligent. He was patient and calculating and very deliberate in how he conducted his campaigns. He didn't just run in there and, well, I mean, he did just run in there and swing the sword about, but he thought about how the sword was to be swung before he got stuck in there. And his approach to tactics, his, his focus on strategic thinking was a big part of his successes on the battlefield. But that success was also bred by things that he did off the battlefield. He was someone who very highly valued military intelligence, and he used a vast spy network that he would built up Uh, in order to determine the opportune moment to launch his attacks, or conversely to figure out if he should withdraw and wait for a better time. And in order to support his spy network, he also built a communications network as well, with messengers speeding their way around his realm, delivering the latest news and tidings at, at great speed. And this may not sound all that exciting, but they say, after all, knowledge is power. And I mean, you know, look, Tens of thousands of mounted soldiers is also power, and Genghis Khan, he made sure that he had both at all times. This gave him a marked advantage over his enemies, particularly as even when they attempted to ally themselves against him, they were never as unified or as well informed as he was. We've talked a lot about unity and how Genghis Khan unified the tribes without really investigating how. So let's talk about what went into unifying his realm, not just from a military standpoint, but also from a cultural one. I mentioned before that he would scatter conquered people throughout his territory so as to assimilate them to, to Mongol rule. Very successful technique, and in short, there was never a concentration of discontent amongst conquered people because they were spread out and surrounded by other loyal Mongol followers. But on top of this, he also gave any... well. I was going to say anyone, almost anyone, we'll come to that in a second. He gave almost anyone the opportunity for advancement and, and success within his realm. I, I talked about the fact that he wasn't hugely classist. He he didn't he didn't draw the line at only ethnic Mongols being able to rise through the ranks here. No, he he was an advocate of, of meritocracy. It didn't matter if you were a Mongol or somebody conquered. If you were good at what you did, you'd have a chance to prosper. Sometimes, anyway. Now, why am I being so cagey about this? Well, because... We've got to come to the other side of the ledger, the part of Genghis Khan's legacy that really doesn't doesn't reflect super well on him at all. Because perhaps the most significant factor in Genghis Khan unifying the tribes of the Plateau was the fact that he was a murderous butcher. I mean, let's not delude ourselves here. He was ruthless and cold-blooded and extremely cruel when he needed to be. And nowhere was that more obvious than when it came to one of the practices he carried out after conquering and resisting people. He would subject the men in the lands that he conquered to a process known as being measured against the linchpin. And if you don't know what that is, let me tell you, it is not very nice at all. Genghis Khan would take all the men who had been captured and imprisoned after fighting him. He would line them up and have them walk alongside a large wagon wheel into which a linchpin was stuck. And anyone who was taller than the linchpin would be beheaded on the spot, no questions asked. And sometimes if there, were, if there had been particularly stiff resistance, he would also do this with civilians as well, not just the soldiers, not just the troops that were taken prisoner. He would also go through the civilian populations and, and kill all of the men of a certain height. Now, why? Why would he do this? How could something so barbaric bring about unity between all of these, these warring tribes? Well, What he was really doing wasn't just arbitrarily killing taller men. He was, broadly speaking, killing all the men who were big and strong enough to meaningfully resist him. All the grown men would be killed. Those who remained would be spread out throughout his realm, and sometimes they'd be enslaved as they did so. And it's very difficult to resist a conqueror when most of your grown men have been executed. I mean, purely from a practical perspective, but then there's also the fear that this sort of thing would have struck into people's hearts. All of a sudden, people don't want to resist Genghis Khan. They don't want to be measured against the linchpin. So when armies appear on the horizon, you put down the swords. You start getting ready to surrender. Genghis Khan measured the Tatars against the linchpin. He measured the armies in Jamukha's coalition against the linchpin. He killed countless thousands in his search for unity. So, you know, while we give him credit for bringing together all these warring tribes and unifying them under him, well, it was unity bought with blood. And a lot of blood. Genghis Khan is a complicated historical figure with a mixed legacy as a result of actions like these. While he was meritocratic and tolerant and generous, he was also ruthless and murderous. And so his is not a straightforward tale to tell. But however however he did it, by 1206 he had, as I say, he had united the tribes of the Mongolian plateau and he had established at last the Mongol Empire. Him taking his new title of Genghis Khan signified the rise of a colossal new power. And he didn't waste time in reforming his new realm in many different ways. Some of his reforms were military. He restructured his enormous army. He promoted people of low birth to position of high command based on merit and loyalty, as I've said. But most reforms weren't military in nature, and some of them were quite forward thinking. And now we're back on the other side of the ledger because he banned the sale of women as slaves. He set up protection for various minority religions, he instituted tax laws that exempted the poor, and also he pushed education and literacy on his, on his people. So all of these reforms did a lot to modernize and, uh, and improve the, the, the Mongol Empire. But all of them, of course... Pale in comparison to his military achievements that are still yet to come as he forged the largest contiguous empire that history has ever seen before or since. But that, exalted listener, is a story for next week. Join me as we talk about his conquests of China to the south and the east before he eventually moved westwards and got to the threshold of Europe. So much to get across next week and I hope you're looking forward to continuing to learn about one of the greatest conquerors that history has ever known. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the first half of the story of Genghis Khan. Looking forward to your company next week when we get across the second half, of course, and... Thanks once again to alert listener Mason who suggested this as a topic and or who is also, I guess, due for another thanking next week as well. So two thankings for the price of one for Mason. He's absolutely made it like a man here. If you'd like to follow in his exalted footsteps, head over to halfhushistory.com. There's a contact form there and you can make your own topic suggestion and get your own thanks on the uh, the podcast. I mean, suggest maybe suggest a 5 part and then you get five thanks for the price. I'm probably not going to do a 5 of That would be... A lot. Anyway, history.net is not just where you can submit uh, suggestion, ideas, also feedback, and you can find links to things like the merch shop. Go and buy yourself a history t-shirt. Or you can uh, support the show directly on Patreon, patreon.com slash a great way to uh, support the show. Also get access to exclusive patron-only merch as well as things like show notes, um, uncut episodes, early access to episodes as well, get them before the, the great unwashed do. But hey, even if you're not supporting the show on Patreon, thanks for being part of the half Our History family and listening in anyway, and I'm looking forward to your company next week, as I say, when we get across the uh, the second half of this story. Until then, leaving with a question posed on Reddit, this one, I mean, I think, hmm, I said how uh, Genghis Khan has like 16 million descendants. I think Reddit user Kaz Van got a little carried away uh, by by thinking that one in four people are descended from Genghis Khan. I don't know that that's true. But, but in any case, Kazvan asks, if we share 50% of our DNA with bananas and one in four people descend from, descend from Genghis Khan, does that mean that Genghis Khan was 200% banana? <laughs>